Everyone's got their own grind face. Monday to Friday, I'm one of the hundreds of thousands of people racing their way to downtown Toronto for work. I don't own a car, and instead of sardining into go trains or subway cars, or groggily attempting to make conversation in a cab or Uber, I'm lucky enough to be able to make the 8-kilometer trek on my bicycle. It's wonderful. The air on my face, the blood pumping through my veins as the sun peeks up from the horizon, all blazing pinks and orange. It's my morning workout and cup of coffee all in one. My bike folds the city over, making large distances feel small and accessible. But sometimes it can feel like I'm putting my life at risk. Wait, wait, wait. Mom, if you're listening, please tune out for a minute or two. Okay. Sometimes it can feel like I'm putting my life at risk. Here I am, a small, fragile being surrounded by tons of steel, precariously whirring through an obstacle course littered with potholes, snaked with snaring streetcar tracks, eyes always peeled for a door carelessly flung open, or a car making a last-minute lane change. Am I crazy to do this? Almost every day a pedestrian steps out in the street suddenly, eyes glued to their phone. Or a delivery truck blocks the bike lane and I throw out a left-hand signal and scan over my shoulder. I merge with traffic and hope that I haven't made a critical mistake. Maybe I should just stay off these streets. Maybe they're not made for this. But no. I curse, grind my teeth, and let the road rage boil in my blood. These idiots don't know what they're doing. They should get the hell out of my way. Because I know what I'm doing. It's everyone else's fault. Of course, then I blow through a stop sign, forcing a legally turning car to jam on the brakes and startle a lovely couple crossing at the crosswalk. Suddenly, I'm the asshole here. Recently, there's been a flare-up of discourse surrounding the safety of drivers, cyclists, and pedestrians in Toronto, and everyone wants their voice to be heard and their agenda to be forwarded. But these streets aren't just for cars or bikes. They're not singularly for downtowners or suburbanites. These are all of our streets. With so many people across purposes, I'm not sure how to create a safe, modern streetscape. But I do know that the grind never stops. I'm producer Neil, and this is Spacing Radio. Back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk laneway housing with architect Brian Kucharski and we talk to former parking enforcement officer Kyle Ashley about his run for city councillor. But first, 
Cycle Toronto's Liz Sutherland is going to tell us about the Ontario Municipal Commuter Cycling Program, which drew its funding from the so-called cap-and-trade program. It meant funding for multiple Ontario cities and towns, $25.6 million for Toronto, $9.6 million for Ottawa, close to $2.3 million for Mississauga, etc., etc. What happens to cycling in Ontario with a new provincial government that is less than sympathetic to the plight of the urban cyclist? We get into it. Stand by. Yes, uh, I mean, we were very pleased to see the Ontario Municipal Commuter Cycling Program introduced. It was funded through cap-and-trade dollars, um, and uh, $25.6 million was allocated to Toronto. Uh, the good news is that we get to keep that money because it has been allocated. Okay. Uh, Toronto has to spend it by 2020, uh, but there will be no continuation of the funds after that point. Um, so uh, the City of Toronto hadn't banked on there being anything further, but um, certainly it will mean that plans would have to be scaled back uh, across municipalities that had banked on that long term. Right, and uh, what what kind of things can we, can we build with uh, twenty five point six million? Where, where did we reach a level where we started to uh, think about what we could use that money for? Well, yes. I mean, we have a we have a ten year cycling plan that's been approved by council, um, give or take a few key elements. So uh, the city had planned to incorporate that money into its uh, bike plan spending over the next few years. Um, it would have, um, you know, it would have covered the expansion of our network in terms of protected bike lanes and uh, painted bike lanes on on. Uh, quieter streets and uh, and some of the quiet ways that they're planning as well. Um, some of the money was also to go to the expansion of Toronto Bike Share. Okay. And, and with that sort of spending deadline, uh, do you think that will sort of uh, light a fire at City Council to try and uh, uh, m- maybe move things along and meet the, don't leave that money wasted on the table? Well, yes, we certainly hope so. Um, sometimes money has been lapsed in the past. Uh, money hasn't always been the issue in terms of getting bike lanes installed in Toronto. It's as much about political will. Uh, so we, we would be keen to see the, the city make sure they do spend all that funding. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if things go well in terms of council support over the next few years, they should be able to do so. Right. And so uh, there is a, a sort of a push uh, from various uh, cycling orga- organizations across the province uh, to try and uh, find a new source of funding for, for programs like the, the commuter cycling program. Uh, have you seen any movement there or people starting to organize in that way? Well, we certainly saw uh, quite uh, a lot of disappointment expressed publicly when the program was announced as having been cancelled. And a lot of municipalities, I think, are concerned about uh, there being a replacement program. Uh, Some municipalities don't have much infrastructure at all for cycling and and would have counted on this to to build a network. So I think there would be a lot of um, support among municipalities across Ontario for a replacement program. We haven't heard any plans for that from the province. Obviously, uh, everything that was cap-and-trade funded is being scaled back or, or closed down, and we are curious to see what the province does in the way of fighting climate change and, uh, and whether there will be other kind of programs that will help mitigate climate change the way encouraging cycling does. Right. Seems like a, a bit of a, an uphill battle with the, the new administration. Uh, probably not super bike-friendly, but you've got to try, right? 
I think you have to try it and you, you have to make the case. Uh, I mean, cycling infrastructure, it's a, it's a no-brainer in terms of a cost-effective way to prevent future healthcare costs. Um, it's cheaper than maintaining uh, roads for motor vehicles, which uh, put a lot more wear and tear on the streets. And uh, it essentially gets people moving um, more efficiently than it does in motor vehicles. So there's a lot of arguments that I think would resonate with the Ontario government um, that I think municipalities and advocates have to be using to uh, to encourage the province to continue to fund uh, commuter cycling infrastructure. And uh, moving on to uh, sort of Vision Zero and uh, road collisions, uh, injuries and deaths, uh, it, it has been, uh, we're on track for another bad year, I think. Uh, we've had a, a number of bad years in terms of road collisions. Uh, and uh, so council recently unanimously voted to double the safety budget. Um, uh, which is encouraging. Uh, they're talking about red light cameras, speed enforcement, a downtown collision reporting center as opposed to the one that's currently located in Scarborough. So if you have a collision on your bike downtown, you're expected to somehow make your way to Scarborough to report it. Uh, that would be a great um, improvement. Uh, but some people still don't feel that it goes far enough or, or fast enough. Yeah, uh, we were certainly encouraged to see the uh, the increase in funding that was proposed uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, first of all, by Mayor Tory, and then um, contributed to by members of the uh, of the council committee that uh, that that discussion happened at a few weeks ago. Uh, we'll see if all of the measures make it through city council uh, at the end of this month. But uh, we were very encouraged at the attention to road safety because um, you know people are people are aware that the current Vision Zero road safety plan. Is, is not getting us uh, in the right direction, that we need to be much more ambitious. Um, we look at the per capita funding levels uh, of New York City, for example, which is $38 per person per year. Mm -hmm. And if you compare Toronto, even with the new funding, that gets us from 7 to $8 per person per year. So it's, it's not in the same range. Um, that being said, there are some uh, quick and easy measures that we could do uh, with, the, with the money that we have. Um, and that, uh, you know, that involves things like putting up bollards, pre-cut pre um, or pre-cast concrete rather and uh, and doing things like more automated red light cameras um, for enforcement measures that uh, that you can do without a great deal more funding. Uh, that said, the speed enforcement piece is uh, the missing link. We had a Safer School Zones Act passed by the province in 2017, but a critical regulation under that that would have allowed us to use automated uh, speed cameras was not passed. And so we need the City of Toronto to put pressure on the province to put that regulation in place so that we can use speed cameras in Toronto for safety uh, around school zones and in other community, other community safety zones. Right. And uh, further criticism of the way City has handled the Vision Zero, uh, their particular Vision Zero approach uh, has been that, uh, you know, the idea of Vision Zero is often seen as uh, the large component is to redesign streets so that they're sort of accident proof that, you know, uh, anyone can have a slip up, anyone can make a, a mistake. It's, it's not all crazy psychopaths uh, driving around the city. It's stuff happens. Um, and uh, there's been great success in other cities, especially in, you know, uh, European cities where they redesign their streets in a way that uh, almost subliminally encourages people to slow down and to take better looks. Uh, you know, uh, we are 
I think maybe it's a money issue, uh, but we, we haven't really committed to that kind of massive overhaul of the street design. So uh, I think maybe you can speak to, uh, there is now the uh, hashtag build the vision coalition, uh, which includes Cycle Toronto, 880 Cities, uh, WalkTO, which are uh, just from what, what I've seen of the build the vision campaign, that that addresses more of the design component of streets that we're not really talking about at City Hall. Yes, certainly uh, we do need to see more emphasis on uh, changing the way our streets and our intersections are designed. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately about behavioral change um, and some, to some degree about enforcement as well. But fundamentally, Vision Zero has to start with the way we design our streets. Um, it, has to slow moving, uh, it has to slow motor vehicle traffic down uh, because speed kills. It is the number one factor um, in, in the uh, number of deaths that we see on our streets. So our roads do have have to, um, as you say, almost subliminally encourage people to slow down. So that means narrower lane widths, um, it means safer crossings for pedestrians at intersections, and it means protected bike lanes that give space for, uh, for people biking that is separate from motor vehicles. So certainly that needs to be the number one emphasis. Um, yeah, we were very pleased to be part of the Build the Vision TO Coalition. Uh, we had a, an incredible response to our launch in June, and we're really pleased to be working with our partners to promote um, a kind of a broad-based agenda for, for street safety in Toronto. Um, Cycle Toronto has its own campaign asks in there, um, asking uh, council and mayoral candidates if they will indeed build the grid, build the cycling plan uh, that we need to see, and to build it faster by 2022, and uh, to have councillors support that, not only across the board in the city, but in their own wards, uh, connecting people to their own destinations, locally and citywide. Uh, but the broader coalition has asks that focus on things like speed limits, um, the traffic calming, uh, you know, people do experience difficulty trying to get traffic calming in their neighborhoods, so we want to see that streamlined. Mm -hmm. um, and then other measures like, um, you know, building sidewalks when streets are reconstructed and uh, making sure sidewalks are wide enough and uh, you know, even things like um, open streets, which uh, encourage people to get out in streets um, when, when they're close to motor vehicles and experience their streets as, uh, as active participants. So it's a, it's a broad range of measures that we're promoting to, uh, to encourage people to think about the way they use their streets differently and uh, to redesign them so that they're safer uh, for everyone. And uh, talking about expanding that grid, um, uh, plans uh, to extend the Bloor bike lanes uh, ha have been uh, delayed uh, by uh, two years, I think, between Church and Sherburne uh, due to uh, a variety of things, road road projects, uh, water main projects. Uh, I guess they're doing work all down that strip, and that's kind of been put on hiatus for a bit. Yes, uh, we were we were sorry to hear that. Um, certainly, um, whenever cycling infrastructure is delayed, we're concerned about the safety impact of that. Uh, that said, we're keeping our attention on the broader Bloor and Danforth campaigns. We do need to see uh, protected bike lanes all the way across the city, um, and uh, and we think that there needs to be. Um, essentially a commitment on the part of the city to to do it um, on, in a, on a more ambitious scale. So yes, we need to fill that, that two-block stretch. We also need to address the Sharrows in Yorkville, and we need to extend the, the Bloor lanes east and west so they connect up with new lanes on the Danforth um, if and when they're put in, and we hope they will, as a result of the um, complete street study that should take place starting in 2019. Right, and that study will be voted on uh, on the 23rd, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, council would have decided on it one way or the other. Um, but uh, you know, what 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 does that entail? That that seems to be like uh, from the complete street study 
uh, is where these uh, eventual Danforth bike lanes could stem from. Mm-hmm. Well, the the Danforth planning study um, was was done on a, a stretch of the Danforth, and it's the first of two parts. Um, but there there was a clear uh, desire on the part of community residents who were consulted as part of that uh, to have complete streets. So to have widened sidewalks uh, with more amenities and to narrow sorry, to narrow the traffic lanes and install protected bike lanes on on Danforth. Uh, People want their street to be a main street uh, that they can enjoy and not just a highway that people travel through to get somewhere else. All right. Well, Liz, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Okay. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you, Glenn. As an update, the Danforth Avenue planning study was approved by Toronto City Councillor since my talk with Liz. Now, recently Toronto City Council approved laneway housing in the city's downtown, but with a number of strict guidelines. Thing is, Toronto has laneway housing. It has for years. And the existing houses are some of the most charming, most unique pieces of architecture you'll find in the city. I talked to architect Brian Kucharski, who operates out of a laneway suite on Croft Street, who was kind enough to give me a tour of what could become an iconic Toronto building style. So, Brian, uh, thank you first for inviting me into this space, uh, the studio on Croft Street here. Thanks. Thanks for coming. I'm, I'm always glad to show people around. Uh, I'm very impressed. I wanted to talk to you uh, because we're, we're talking laneway suites, and uh, here you are as an architect who uh, develops laneway uh, suites, townhouses, uh, and uh, I think this is a very uh, unique example in the city, uh, but uh, it's not without precedent. Yeah, there's, um, I think even you acknowledge that this may, uh, the house seems bigger than it really is from the outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure if that's what everybody defines as a laneway suite. Mm-hmm. This is more like a, you know, a reasonable sized family home. Um, so in a way, it's not necessarily uh, the laneway suite fits into that, you know, design guideline. But I, uh, I like touring people around just to show them uh, how I mitigated all the privacy issues and dealt with sunlight concerns. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess we're, uh, we're, you can't see, but uh, I've, I've shown you around and, you can, and I've demonstrated that it, there's a lot of green elements to the house as well. And right. And in some ways, the green elements, uh, you know, sort of mitigate any privacy concerns that there might be. There's trees, you know, sort of giving everyone a sense of space, personal space. Right. And uh, one of the first things I did when I was planning the new house, it's a, I guess if we step back and describe the property, it was a 137 foot deep property, uh, 26 feet wide uh, with a detached house, Victorian detached house at the front on the street. Mm -hmm. So my, uh, I've been planning this for probably 15 years. Right. But one of the first things I did was decide where the trees were going to go you know, between the two houses so that I could use those as mitigating factors for um, privacy but also provide shade for the new house. Right. So there's now a very large tree that sort of is the focus of the new home and uh, is a part of the uh, original backyard. It gives everybody a really nice tree canopy. And so uh, did this project uh, sort of spark your interest at your professional sort of career in, in dealing with this typology? or, or I think you... every architect loves tight, awkward um, sites. And the idea of a 
very urban house. I think a lot of architects would get very excited about. Having said that, I'd love to design a big suburban house right now, mm -hmm. <laughs> low and long and flat. Right. But um, yeah, I think all architects love the, the challenge of a very urban condition. And this is a very urban condition. On the Croft Street side, we're hard up against the street. Um, I think it, you may be better to comment on this, but when you open the door, it's suddenly you're, you're inside a very tranquil, bright, uh, another world. Yeah. It's you step off of Croft and you're into another world. For Doctor Who fans, it's, it's kind of like the TARDIS. It's, <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, every architect would love the challenge right. of designing it. The laneway suite, and uh, you know, Croft Street is uh, it is lined with. Uh, I think you told me when we were talking that there's, there's about sixteen registered addresses. Right, there's sixteen homes that have frontage on Croft, and that's only frontage on Croft. Right, they're not part of another property. And uh, I, I hate, I hate that I'm going to use this word, but uh, I, I got to say, it, like, it does have this kind of European feel, like this, this right. dense, compact charm that uh, you don't see in a lot of North American cities, uh, certainly younger ones like Toronto. Right. And I think people love that. Um, it's funny. I think your average Torontonian understands that idea of the density and sort of a tight, tight streets are appealing. But um, when you actually try to submit an application, it, that's often the biggest fight is like, you know, it's too tall, too tight, too close to the street. Mm -hmm. We resist that, I guess, in our own backyards. Professionally, where does that pushback come from? I think it's this notion of it, people don't like change. Mm, right. <laughs> there, having said that, I have a lot of neighbors that really get it and really accept it. Um, and long-term residents that have been here for 30, 40, 50 years, that, that they aren't necessarily the problem. It's... Um, in a way, I find it people who are just uh, have a very set idea on what their home is, right. and it's never going to change. And they have a very powerful voice in terms of city council, and you know the yeah, the, the residents association is usually made up with those type of people. Right. On the other hand, you know that they, they may eventually age out of the debate. I mean, well, these are it, people who it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know my uh, residents association. They're always trying to recruit new younger people and I've tried to bring a few um, I remember maybe six or seven years ago one of the older women came up to me and said thank you for bringing your friends right <laughs> you know because they were so excited to see anybody under 40 right <laughs> so uh, that that it's an issue and uh, they have a lot of power though with a, the, a lot of political power and that's the, I get very frustrated with that but uh, change is coming. I mean, recently at City Council, they approved um, laneway housings in in Toronto East York uh, with some very specific caveats. Yeah. So um, it's interesting how that all came about because it wasn't the first time that this has been um, tried. I think it was about 10 years ago, Jeffrey Stinson, who has his own kind of iconic, well, he did, he's passed away, but he had his own um, iconic laneway house near Toronto Western Hospital. And he wrote a very extensive report on laneway housing and the types of lots that it was, it was appropriate on. In fact, it was a lot more detailed in some ways than what has just been approved. Right. Um, but I guess this is the first step. It's good that we've got over this, this hump now and people are actually thinking that it's going to be reality. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 
you know, some, some of the caveats or the stipulations of the new regulations that were approved uh, have some architects scratching their heads. Uh, you were talking. I about think this. most architects most architect. scratch their heads. And yeah. the, the odd thing is the 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 group that were promoting the um, laneway suites, landscape, I believe it was. Yeah, they didn't necessarily oppose some of the measures, and I can understand why they wanted to just get this through. Right, compromise. Right, they were part of it with the a couple of the local councillors they were part of it so they wanted to see it through um having said that there was a lot of architects that lined up at the two community council meetings mm-hmm. the final ones to really stress that there was maybe we were boxing uh, architects in or designers in too much with some of these design guidelines right and do you think uh, to an extent that might have always been the plan like, well, yes, they're approved, but... <laughs> We're going to get into the, some conspiracy theories here. <laughs> I think there were some, again, influential people in the, in the um, residence associations. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the ear of uh, councillors with planners. Mm-hmm. I'm not just necessarily planners are always on board, but, um, you know, if they really wanted to limit laneway housing they could just put a bunch of controls on it and they knew that there's going to be very few of these that are actually going to be outright the way it stands uh as the way that i see it there's going to still be a, a log jam at the committee of adjustment because everybody's going to need some kind of a variance right and i think there's going to be a lot of um there's a lot to sort out in terms of internal workings with the planning department and with the committee of adjustment how this is all going to happen and you professionally as someone who deals with this typology uh, are you sort of starting to devise plans to sort of streamline how, how you could actually make these things work within within the, uh, the guidelines, guidelines that have been? Approved? I think I've thought about the sort of a modular type of home. It would be very interesting. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the first one that is sort of coming up with this concept. Right. Uh, the oh, problem, in Vancouver, there. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is uh, our lots are so varied and so tight. Mm-hmm. Even doing a modular type of home would be very difficult. How would you get it in to a normal... Uh, Croft is not a normal laneway. It's a, it's a wide laneway. It's a street. Right, yeah. So, you know, Croft, it kind of would work on because you could get access to it. But, um, you know, when you think of how narrow some laneways are in like Little Portugal, or it'd be very hard to kind of get any kind of vehicle in there to drop off a modular home. Right, yeah. And then there are concerns about, you know, how do you get a fire truck back there? How do you yeah, get, yeah. That's, a, that's a no-go as far as the city is concerned. The firefighting will be from the street. Right. So, again, um, access to these laneway suites has to be from the street, down the side of the existing house. A lot of houses don't have that width. Mm-hmm. There's going to be all sorts of uh, limitations on what you can do. But despite those limitations, are you excited? I think it's great. Yeah. We'll see what... Um, what, how this all pans out right as long as the again the the planning department and the committee of adjustment as long as they kind of figure out a strategy uh, how they're going to handle this flood of applications uh, because there's going to be a lot of people that require some kind of a variance right and the broader conversation that we're having is that uh, you know toronto needs more housing stock uh, you know rents are skyrocketing it's uh, it's getting more and more difficult for people to buy and uh well I, I'm hearing that, like, even if these laneway houses were built uh, uh, under the new guidelines, they probably wouldn't be, you know, super affordable. Uh, well, I never quite understood that strategy. This property was severed from the original property. Mm-hmm. And so the financing of it makes sense. You have a second property, you can get a second mortgage, you can you get 
construction financing, it's and when, add density with low impact, right? And um, if if they're not allowing severances, and this was a fairly large lot, I agree that you know it would be kind of silly to try to sever off a small lot, right? But um, I don't understand how the financing would work. You, I feel like you'd have to have owned a property for a good couple decades to make any sense of trying to finance a, a second dwelling mm-hmm. on the same property. Right. Because um, there's all sorts of costs associated with it. Uh, and just to, to, to get your money back, you're going to have to be charging a substantial market rent. Right. And I think a lot of people, uh, I've been to these community meetings, I think that a lot of people have this big idea that they're going to make a fortune renting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a very odd situation and we'll, we won't see how it till it all pans out right how many people are actually going to attempt to do this and at the very least it could be a solution for you know how do you increase density in uh, uh, of course in, yeah in, in, i mean i'm a big proponent of that i think i showed you around my property we have five households right on a single family lot and it doesn't look like it no and they're not there's these are high-end dwellings too these right. are um so it's, I think the city needs to sort of really encourage that kind of creativity and uh, redeveloping what we have. Right. I don't, I've never understood the rush to build super tall towers. Mm-hmm. And the planning department seems to be falling all over themselves to do that. So what's next for laneways? Good question. Well, I'm really curious to see how many applications are actually going to get in the next year mm-hmm. and the quality of those applications. Um. I'm a little nervous that there's this sort of some develop small developers are going to think it's a big way to make money, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's never a good thing. Uh, but I'm I'm optimistic. We'll see. We'll see in the next year. I think uh, it'll be at least a year before you start to see any kind of activity. Yeah. Well, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with yeah. me. Thanks for coming over. <laughs> Let's pay some bills. All right, I'm here at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, with uh, my boss, uh, publisher, editor, Matt Blackett. Uh, Matt, I am in the mood for some city swag, so uh, what am I going to do about that? Well, you have a real good opportunity because we've opened up a, a, a pop-up shop at City Hall. So um, it's called Trontopia. It's something that we've been working on with uh, the city and its uh, tourism uh, department. Um, and it's called Trontopia. And we have uh, this uh, shipping container, a modified shipping container, right at the corner of Queen and Bay. Um, and it's kind of selling uh, the best hits of what we offer at the spacing store. Okay. Can I get a T-shirt? You can get you can get lots of T-shirts, and what's what's great is you know we have some of our own T-shirts, but we've been bringing in lots of other uh, designers and artists stuff that we have there. Um, tourists seem to be very intrigued by the raccoon. They don't understand why we have so much stuff dedicated to the raccoon. So we, we tell them all about it, and everyone seems to recognize that the raccoon is much more of a Toronto icon and symbol than say a, a mountie or a moose or a, a beaver, which is you know the typical stuff you get at a at a tourist shop. Right. You always wanted to avoid those uh, kind of 
cliche Canadiana things. Yeah, yeah. We, well, you know, this is, you know, we've always had this working motto, no moose, no beavers, when it comes to the, 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 the spacing store. So we're, we're, uh, we're excited to kind of uh, put out what is, like, you know, true about the city, put out stuff that represents the city in, a, in its, like, m- most authentic kind of way. And, you know, what I, what I really love about this pop-up shop is that um, we're kind of really walking the walk. Um, we're a magazine about public space and about engaging in the public realm of the city and we probably couldn't be any more public than opening up a container ship on the steps of Toronto City Hall, probably one of the city's most iconic uh, iconic landmarks. So this is a really fun thing uh, that we're doing. It's open uh, Wednesday to Saturday each week um, up until Labor Day weekend and we'll be open on the, the Sunday and the Monday of Labor Day weekend as well. Okay, I'll be sure to stop by. Well, you, you better or, you know, I'm your boss. <laughs> Thanks, man. Bye. Kyle Ashley gained international attention as a parking enforcement officer who focused specifically on car drivers abusing Toronto's bike lanes. His social media savvy was a large component of his work and is arguably a model for community policing going forward. Now, he's running for city council against a longtime incumbent and the current chair of the Public Works Committee. I talked to Kyle about Vision Zero, housing, and the future of policing. All right, Kyle, thanks for sitting down with me. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I first uh, learned about you uh, when you were a parking enforcement officer uh, who was focusing specifically on bike lanes mm-hmm. and uh, the various multifarious uh, infractions that uh, drivers tend yes. to uh, create in those lanes. So mm-hmm. uh, first, can you tell me a bit about that job? Sure. Uh, so for the past five years, I was a uniformed civilian under the Traffic Services Unit of the Toronto Police. Uh, and for the first few years of my duties, I was just like every other officer, just out there patrolling in a car. Uh, and then I decided to get on the bike. Uh, and having been a cyclist myself, uh, I've experienced the roads uh, in a uniform and out. Uh, and I noticed that there was a huge gap in the delivery of service that the Toronto Police was providing uh, to the cycling community. Um, they're a community that felt they'd been ignored by the police for a very long time. Uh, so back in about April or May of last year, I was sent to the Toronto Police College to uh, learn about social media and how to use it as a law enforcement officer. And um, it was really about connecting with your community and being part of it and listening and engaging. Uh, so after taking that course, I, I dug deep into uh, the city's cycling plan of 2011 and I was reviewing it to see what could the city uh, and specifically the police be doing to better protect the road's most marginalized users. Uh, And I noticed one of the areas was increasing the presence of parking enforcement officers uh, in the bike lanes. And I noticed it wasn't being done. I mean, I was on my bike uh, patrolling the streets and it just wasn't part of the, you know, uh, a daily... I, I would patrol the streets and the bike lanes as I was coming across them, but there was never a dedicated enforcement team to it. Right. Uh, so I proposed to my managers um, to let me sort of test the waters of uh, exclusively enforcing bike lanes and documenting the infractions. I think it was about May 15th of last year. Um, it was my first day after the social media training, and I went out on the road, and I caught somebody in a bike lane on Shooter, uh, and I asked her uh, if I could take a picture with her uh, and her vehicle and her ticket uh, for obstructing the bike lanes. 
and it sort of went from there. It went viral. I mean, by the end of the day, I was on two or three different media outlets. Uh, fast forward about a month, I, I was doing that project during bike month of last year. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, uh, even after that, uh, there was cries from the community to have more of me because I was one officer responding to complaints over Twitter. I was biking from Runnymede and that area all the way to Dundas and Vic Park. And in a day I would do about 40 to 80 kilometers uh, and it was just not practical for one officer to be doing all this. So I proposed to my managers um, and handpicked Sabrina and Aaron because uh, I saw that they, they were bikers and then they had the uh, desire to protect vulnerable road users. It's Sabrina uh, Klutzig and Aaron Urquhart, um, okay. both of whom are still operating on Twitter under the banner and under the model in which I created. Right. Um, so after proposing that to my boss, that we have three of these officers uh, dedicated to the bike lanes on Twitter, engaging, uh, it just sort of became the standard for, for departmental communications, uh, and thus the bike lane brigade was, was born. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and like, uh, you know, it, it's part enforcement, but also education. Mm -hmm. The Toronto Star, maybe a month ago, had, had a piece uh, I was very sympathetic to. I am a cyclist, predominantly. Mm -hmm. I, I don't tend to drive. Uh, but uh, I do understand when people don't actually know the rules because we have such yes. a variation of different kinds of bike lanes. Mm -hmm. like, and uh, you really do need an explainer to sit down for cyclists and drivers and yep. pedestrians to be like, this dotted line means this and the solid yes. line means this. and. Right. So, uh, so th I think there's a fundamental flaw in the education system itself. Uh, bike lanes are a bit of a newer concept to North American cities. Um, as we grow in population, we're only going to see more of them. Um, the levels that we're doing at sort of driver's education, people aren't being taught. Uh, the TDSB has eliminated programs where police officers would go into the school. I think it was Elmer the Safety Elephant, and they would teach kids how to ride their bike. Uh, so these programs have been lost, and it's we're now seeing the consequences out on the road of a lack of education, uh, but then more importantly, uh, a lack of consistent uh, intuitive design. Yes. Okay. I fully agree with that. Uh, you hit a little hiccup uh, as a parking yes. enforcement officer. Uh, uh, I guess you were being too real on Twitter. <laughs> I guess if that's possible, yeah. I was always told to stick to my lane by the police, so to speak, right? Pun intended. Um, and I did so. I only ever talked about bike lane issues. And I have maintained from day one, go back and quote me from Toronto Star, CP24, anything, that public safety is not a political issue. Mm -hmm. So I was always maintaining the idea that, you know what, I'm not being political. I'm speaking within my realm of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, there was a little bit of a hiccup that perhaps maybe uh, people thought I was getting too big for my britches, or perhaps I was getting better publicity than the Toronto Police as a whole. Um, you know, there's a grave concern when 80% of the Toronto Police Service doesn't live in the city, um, and they don't often even get out of their cars when they are in the city now. So there's a, there's a strained relationship for sure. Um, but, you know, I learned through that time um, what my true calling was, was, was public service. Uh, so that's where I'm leading into, into my next chapter. Right, and you are running for council, and not just running for council, you are running against an incumbent, uh, Councillor Jay Robinson, who is mm -hmm. the chair of the Public Works and Development Committee. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Well, uh, sure. Uh, so when I was sitting at home, I, I wanted to get into the foray of municipal politics uh, after everything that had happened with the police, but there were so many wonderful progressive candidates uh, all around the city that I didn't want to dilute the vote anymore. Uh, and it came to a point about halfway through last week, which would have been just about a week before nomination deadlines, that I noticed that there were a few incumbents running unopposed. Um, 
And I found that to be a threat to one of the fundamentals of democracy is having options mm -hmm. uh, in who you elect. So um, I figured it was an excellent opportunity as sort of being hailed as one of Toronto's Vision Zero heroes uh, to go up against somebody who through her track record has proven to be a Vision Zero Zero. Um, and it's important that public works and infrastructure really start to work for the public, and it's not been doing that. What we've been seeing on the Public Works Committee is a dichotomy, a tale of two cities, so to speak. The suburbs versus the downtown, the war on the car. Um, these kinds of conversations, though, are, are completely meant to turn us on each other, because this isn't a war on anybody's car. It's a war about uh, behaviors that are unsafe and political inaction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's really the reason I stepped up to do it was because I felt her track record was abysmal. Um, She's an interesting counselor because uh, arguably you, there is an argument to be made that she has spearheaded the conversation about Vision Zero in council, but then again she will not vote I in favor of, for instance, reducing yeah. speed limits or things yeah. that have statistically been proven to actually sure. reduce road deaths. Realistically, there's hard measures we could be taking that are so simple. A couple weeks ago, we learned about these leading pedestrian interval crossings, which give uh, people an extra five-second head start before lights go green. Uh, this is for children, elderly, it costs $2,000 an intersection, mm -hmm. but we're only installing 80. That costs $160,000. Why are we not installing more? How many thousands of intersections are there in Toronto? And conversely, her idea, um, John Tory has even touted her leadership, if you wish to call it that, in, in championing and spearheading the Vision Zero campaign. But when it comes down to it, she is a clear opponent of it. These woe, slow down signs that she thinks are infrastructure mm -hmm. do not protect. And as we've seen with the leading pedestrian interval crossings, uh, Jeanette Sadiq-Khan of New York City had them installed there and they saw a 60% reduction in collision. These are hard facts that prove that we can stop road violence, but she chooses to put signs on the side of lawns. If I'm going too fast on a side street or down somebody's neighborhood, my peripheral vision is gone. Mm -hmm. And I'm tunneled in on where I'm going. I'm not going to be able to read that sign. That is not infrastructure. Um, your cycling credentials are unimpeachable, uh, but uh, I would like to uh, get you off, uh, you know, onto another topic, sure. if I may. Uh, let's talk about housing because that is uh, something that, if mm -hmm. you were elected to council, you would have to mm -hmm. uh, consider a lot. This pre this city is getting unaffordable for most people, even mm -hmm. just to rent. Uh, so, uh, what, what's your opinions towards uh, the vibrancy of our city depends on the inclusion of young people the elderly. What's happening right now in Toronto uh, for a one-bedroom downtown, you're looking at $2,500 to rent. Uh, and they say that the living wage that you need to survive in Toronto is $22 an hour. People can't survive on that. Um, it's just unrealistic. So more and more people are being pushed out of the city because of this. For example, myself, I do not live in Ward 27. I live in Mark Grimes's ward. Uh, but my partner and I uh, have enjoyed successful careers and we've tried for two years to move to the ward but have been priced out of the market ourselves. Right. Um, and it's not just about you know young people like myself, it's about the elderly too. People on fixed incomes, people on disability, artists. Artists don't make much money but they are the vibrancy of culture. Uh, yeah, it, it, and it's not just about housing affordability, it's 
everything in this city. And to think that the mayor, John Tory, wants us to believe that we need to redefine affordable housing, no, that's not the option. Um, there are many different models that we can look at, like in the Netherlands, they have people paired with elderly. And I believe Councillor Josh Matlow has done this to offer some sort of reduced help, uh, sorry, reduced rent uh, in exchange for help around the house. Right. And uh, it's been kind of a dark year for Toronto. There's mm -hmm. been some unbelievable tragedies. Uh, but what has come out of those tragedies, unfortunately, is uh, talks about reforming the police and not in a way that's been recommended by, say, the former chair of the police board, mm -hmm. like Alok Mukherjee, who I mm -hmm. spoke to in a previous episode. Uh, many experts and former judges or current judges, uh, they all have ideas about reforming the police, uh, but we're not talking about any of those because we have had the van attack in, mm -hmm. in North, uh, North on Young, and we, we have just had the Danforth shooting. Uh, and so now we're talking about more, more officers, we're talking about more surveillance, yes. all of these things. You were employed yeah. by the Toronto Police Service, so I, I would be very interested to hear what your opinions are about community policing going forward. Yeah, I think I was the perfect example of community policing. The idea that you're out on the road engaging and involved in your community. Uh, the Toronto Police, I think, is spouting this idea, but not really living it in practice. Um, for all the criticisms, though, that I do have of the Toronto Police, I will maintain that there aren't enough frontline officers. However, modernizing the police starts with modernizing our social services, looking at early intervention programs before the police have to get involved. Um, and, and, and from my experience in an enforcement on the traffic capacity, uh, we can't intuitively, sorry, we can't enforce the laws properly uh, if people are just making mistakes. So the bulk of my day was spent just educating people. Right. Um, so if intuitive design was in place, um, we would not see the need for the level of enforcement uh, because people just wouldn't be making small mistakes. Um, yeah, ultimately, when it comes down to modernizing the police, it comes down to modernizing our services, our roads, uh, and actually getting buy-in um, inside the Toronto Police. I bought into that idea of community policing, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that they've got many members who, who do. Um, who do buy into that. They might feel it's a little too hippy-dippy. or Yeah, but if you look at the models of policing that were successful through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, despite the many concerns that there are uh, with how, how things were done with that time, they were out on two feet in a heartbeat right. in the community, right? Uh, friendly neighborhood yeah, constable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now it's shifted. Uh, it's shifted towards the idea of uh, reactive policing versus proactive. Uh, and unfortunately, this is a motto within the Toronto Police, FIDO, pardon my language, fuck it and drive off. Given the political climate, that's why you see so many police officers just driving by uh, traffic infractions, just ignoring things because they don't want to get involved in, in the political climate. Uh, so I think in order to ease that back-end pressure that they're feeling, again, it comes to the idea of modernizing everything else before expecting the police to be hired fists, social workers. Um, we need to delineate the resources. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Kyle, I will be watching. I'll see you in October. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. And if I just may say so, uh, as we are seeing today, uh, please visit torontofordemocracy.ca and sign our petition. It is fundamentally important that we all are engaged in this conversation and our voices be heard and equal representation is established. So thank you very much. Thank you.
the straight facts are that much of what my guests and I talked about in this episode could change very quickly. For instance, Kyle Ashley may not have a ward to run in. Currently, Premier Doug Ford is proposing new legislation that would reduce the number of Toronto City Councillors from a proposed 47 to 25. That would mean a single councillor would be responsible for over 100,000 people. Ford says it's a cost-saving measure. But what it amounts to is Ontario's largest economic driver being hobbled at the ground level. It is, as Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi said, an affront to democracy. Ford didn't campaign on this. No one was asking for it. There was no consultation, and city staff are scrambling to figure out how this city can even properly hold an election when the parameters are about to be dramatically changed. Look, I don't pretend to practice objective journalism. Spacing's mandate is, and always has been, the vitality of Canadian cities. I'm in the bag for that. I'm an advocacy journalist. I try to give people a fair shake, but when it comes to the basic functionality of the city I call home, I have to put my foot down. Doug Ford will decimate Toronto. I'm not even clear about why. I was excited as a journalist to cover another municipal election, to talk to people I agree or disagree with in good faith. Now, I don't know. I don't know how to cover this election. I don't know who's going to be running, in which ward, or if that ward even exists. I don't think many of the candidates do either. I've never done this, but I'm going to make a request. Fight this with every fiber of your being. Write emails, call your MPP. The stakes are nothing short of the future health of the city of Toronto, the fourth largest city in North America, a beacon to people from all over the world. For all its faults, it's home, and we should not take this lying down. And that's the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your neighborhood parking enforcement officer, your city councillor, and Doug Ford. A like, share, rating, or subscription on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all one word. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or you can email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca, that's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Our annual national issue will hit the shelf soon, so go get you one. In the meantime, call Doug Ford. What you call him is up to you. Cheers. Cheers.